This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello there, welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast. I'm Peter Gowers and I'd like to introduce you now to my co-host, Mr. Leon Logan-Nathan. How are you, mate? Getting there, getting there. Yeah, it's been a pretty full-on day, I have to say. Well, uh, I wanted to mention this a while ago just so you could be prepared, but as you know, uh, my arrival back in the Territory is not too far off now, so I just need to make sure that you can have the dry season switched on for me by the time I get there, please. Yeah, that's... um, I think uh, I heard a lot of lightning and thunder today. I'm not sure that there was much rain. It was a bit... Yeah, Muggy? so so out there, yeah, okay. yeah. So it's probably the uh, opposite of the of the build up. It's right. build down, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to someone this morning, actually, uh, on a Zoom conference, and um, they sent me a photo. I think they're in Stewart Park. They sent me a photo of. Uh, there was quite heavy rain going into their pool at the time, so I wasn't liking my chances of a, a nice, beautiful, dry season day for my arrival. Right. Well. Anyway. So normally at this stage, um, you would introduce our guest, but uh, on this occasion, I'm going to do it because I probably know him as well as you do, in as much as uh, I've been a connection uh, with him through LinkedIn for a little while now and seen a lot of his posts and keeping in touch with, with what he's up to from that point of view. But uh, I'd like to introduce you, Leon, and our guests uh, to Mr. Craig Oldroyd. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. Thank you, Peter. It's You're welcome, Craig. Thanks, Leon. So now what do we do, Leon? This is normally your bit. I'm lost. Oh, that's okay. So, Craig, <laughs> uh, we don't know much about you at all. Uh, done a little bit of uh, Googling and a little bit of LinkedIn uh, stalking. Tell us your territory story. Oh, well, um, I've come to Darwin uh, kicking and screaming, as I say, to my friends. Um <laughs> I was all of all of one years old. Um, I was born in Preston in Victoria. And um, hang on, I've just lost you. Can you I can me? hear you. Oh, you can hear me, yep. yep. Yeah, I was born in Preston and, and, and my mother and father, uh, my father took a limited tenure with the federal government um, as a tax auditor uh, for 12 months and never left. <laughs> um, There's a lot of tax yeah. auditing to do yeah. up here in the territory. There's a lot of, <laughs> lot of, lot of, lot of tax <laughs> in the territory. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up in 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 Darwin, northern suburbs. Um, you know, went to primary school in Jingley Primary. Um, went to a lot of schools. Um, obviously, after Cyclone Tracy, um, I think I went to five or six schools in Darwin. Mm-hmm. After did you leave? Uh, did you leave after Tracy? Yeah, we 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 left Darwin um, the day after. Um, myself and my sisters and my mother. My father stayed to work with what the cleanup. <laughs> yeah, um, and um, you know what I mean. Like Cyclone Tracy was a was a massive tra- traumatic event for yes. everybody that was involved. But um, you know, I, I did six months of school in in Melbourne. And then came back to Darwin, and um, we got shipped around to multiple schools. Um, but um, you know, I, I, personally, I've, I've actually lived through, uh, I think, about twelve or thirteen cyclones. 
Mm. They seemed to follow me around. You know, <laughs> when I was in Nullumboy, we had two in one year. Um, so i uh, been over the West and a cyclone came to the room while I was there. <laughs> so, I don't know yeah. whether that's the moment, but, but um, look, I, I grew up in Darwin. Uh, I, I love Darwin. This is my hometown. Um, I have a lot of friends here and um, did my high school at Nycliffe High School. Um, played a lot of sport. You know, this is this is what we did in in Darwin as youth was um, we just got involved with a huge amount of sport. So I played from Aussie Rules Football, Rugby League um, was my favourite sport. Um, but we just, you know, I played basketball, um, soccer, baseball, cricket, um, even had, you know, we I played a few seasons of rugby union. So um, whatever sport was going, oh, look, I, I was actually a pretty pretty avid hockey player uh, um, as well. I played the most teams that ever played on the Astro Turf in, in um, Hobart. Um, we had the thinnest pair of tracksuits that you can ever imagine, and, <laughs> and, um, and I couldn't move. <laughs> it was what, very cold. What, what position did you play? Fullback. Right. So, yeah. I, if I'm not mistaken, we used to have a guy from the Territory that was the goalkeeper for the Australian hockey team, didn't we? Was it Darren Berry or someone? Darren Berry, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of really good um, sportsmen in the Northern Territory. And um, so some of my mentors, uh, local sports people, um, one in particular is uh, Steve Bulliabala, who mentored me as, as a junior footballer. And um, and his son was was my best friend, Aaron Abala, but he's passed away now, unfortunately. Mm. And um, so um, Steve Abala, um, Morris Rioli, I was very close with the Rioli family. Um, I spent a lot of time on the TV Islands um, playing footy. Um, you know, we used to have a lot of remote football carnivals and this is one of the things that um, I think that we need to pick back up um, for the youth is, is is carnivals around the Territory. Not so much interstate stuff, but you need to have the interstate stuff as well, but you need to have the Pathways programs for youth and, and, um, and to be able to you know, get these kids up to the level that, that is needed. So, yeah, I, I, I spent a lot of time playing sport and uh, played sport, you know, played a lot of footy. So um, that's where my um, passion um, for youth is, is. You know, we do a lot of, a lot of work with youth in sports programs, but um, I think that, um, you know, you've got to mix that up. You've got to have the education as well as the sports, uh, to have the balance right for, for, for all you. Hey, Craig, just hitting you with one question um, related to the primary school stuff. Yeah. So when you said that you went to four or five different schools, is that because of the, the sort of damage that had been done to them? They, they sort of took time to fix up the various schools in, in your area? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, look, there just wasn't enough classrooms um in in the you know like in in the school where I was living so um you know like um I think that don't know if we had the option or but um I went to Milner school I went from Milner to Nakara Nakara to Moyle Moyle back to Jingley and then Jingley to Alloa mm. so um 
you know, um, it was just uh, it's just the way it was at the time because of, you know, what had happened. Um, some classes were pushed out to other schools. And it was the same with um, other kids as well? You, you all sort of moved around as required? Oh, absolutely, yeah. 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 But the, beauty, the beautiful thing about Darwin um, in those days is that I knew a lot of the families from those schools, so um, mm. it wasn't like we were going to a completely separate environment like I did in Melbourne yeah. you know, where I knew no one. You know, I, I went to Rabbit Creek Primary and I knew half the school. Yeah. So, it, you know, it wasn't a, a, a challenge there because, you know, I already had a lot of friends there. So, um, yeah, and, you know, being involved with sport help, helps you with that, I suppose, because you're around such a diverse, you know, Darwin is, is probably one of the most unique cities in the world for multiculturalism. You know, my friends are from all, all cultures of the world and that's how we grew up. We grew up together. We weren't separated by suburbs or, or towns or anything like that. We were all together and we all worked together as groups and we all played together. It was, um, you know, just a, a really good environment to grow up in. And um, so, you know, I went to Nycliffe High School. I started working at the age of... I started working at the age of about 12. I, I got a job with Antin News delivering papers um, in Darwin City and um, it was where the old um, in West Lane, um, before the West Lane car park or anything was there, mm. um, and I used to carry 300 papers a day on my head. That's probably why I've got no idea. <laughs> 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 no, no, you don't but, yeah, I used to carry 300 papers. I used to drop 100 papers off at Woolworths and an old itinerant man used to look after them for me hmm. and, um, and then I'd go and do my rounds around the buildings um, in the city. Wow. And so that was, that was, you know, one of my first – because my father, um, very entrepreneurial, had businesses and um, myself and my sisters, um, even while we were at school, we had to help work with those businesses. So he had a gardening business. He had a printing business. So a um, little bit ironic, I suppose, but um, being an auditor for the tax department, he was also a, a, a bookie at the races. <laughs> <laughs> so, Funny, I don't man. know how that works. <laughs> he knew his numbers. <laughs> he knew his numbers, but um, he, he printed the sheets for, for, for the horse races, for the, for the trots. Um, for the greyhounds here in Darwin and Alice Springs, and so we would we would stay up sometimes till three, four, five o'clock in the morning, printing sheets for for <laughs> bookmakers. And so, um, you know, um, work ethic was never uh, an issue in, in our family. That's part of what we were ingrained in. Like I said to you, we used to go down and um, spend time with the family in Victoria when, when I was young and we had to go and either work out in the farms out in Strathmerton or we, had, we went into meatworks with our uncles. Um, they were all meat workers in, in Melbourne and we went and assisted them with, with, with their meat runs. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, that was, that was part of the deal. Yeah. going to go down and stay with them. Well, you've got to come work. Yeah, yeah. Pay your way. Pay your way. Mm -hmm. So I worked at a, worked from a very young age um, 
you know, then I went and I started working for Kentucky Fried Chicken in um, Nucky Street. Got a job there. Um, moved on to to, to to better things from Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> uh, no, I won't Mackers. Too much about, no, I didn't go to Mackers. No, Red Rooster. <laughs> well, the rival chicken brand. Yeah, the rival chicken brand. But um, always had a job, you know, that I don't think I've never, ever not had a job. Um, when I when I left high school, I, I went to university at the, you know, um, Charles Darwin University and um, did a pre-vocational course um, on all the trades. And, um, you know, a local businessman walked in, Joe Randezzo, said that uh, he needed two carpentry apprentices. Myself and my mate put our hand up and, <laughs> and you know, we had a job like that. Yeah. So um, I did a carpentry apprenticeship um, here in Darwin. Unfortunately, about the third year of my apprenticeship, things went really quiet in the building industry. What year was that, Craig? Uh, I think it was about um, about eighty five, right? Um, Nineteen eighty five, uh, between eighty five and ninety. Um, that was when I did my apprenticeship. So it, yeah, we had a really bad building drop in in Darwin. So there was there was very little work. Um, I was lucky that you know, like knowing a lot of people from, like I said, from sport. Um, I was able to get a job with a with a smaller local business, uh, Brian Briffer's father, um, and um, and and he was the one that um, encouraged me to to um, get in, get involved with purchasing property in the Northern Territory. Hmm. So we we were working um, at at the start of you know like the building of Palmerston, and um, and he was building some units there and and. And he said to me, "You need to buy, you need to buy some property." And I thought at the time that um, it was crazily expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I bought two 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 bedroom units for I think it was I don't know something crazy like a one hundred twenty five thousand dollars for the two of them. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I was jumping up and down like crazy that you know how expensive is this? <laughs> but. Um, so from 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 working in the building industry, um, look, I, I decided that um, working out in the sun every day, out, out on the building sites, is 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 extreme here in the Northern Territory. You know, um, it's hot enough as it is without having to get on a hot tin roof. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or putting concrete down because when you're an apprentice, right, you, you don't get to do much actual building. You know what I mean? Like, you're doing a lot of concreting. Mm. Um, I think I learned more about uh, roof plumbing than what I did about carpentry <laughs> first year. But um, you know, you just did what you needed to do, and and so you know, I worked in the building industry here for I suppose about five or six years, and then I decided that I wanted to change, and I went and moved over to um, the fire protection industry, and I started working with a company called um, Wormwood Fire, and um, I did a couple of years with Wormwood Fire, and then I worked with a local company called Northern Fire Control, and that's when I really started to to learn about um, sales and and um, you know working with people. I, I I became a trainer, trained the trainer, 
and I started training with um, some of the bigger companies and some of the small organisations as well, fire wardens training, um, at, you know, anything to do with emergency management. I went and did some training. Um, I joined the um, the um, local um, SES, which is um, Northern Territory Emergency Services up here, and um, was a member for about 15 years with them. So they, they didn't have a trainer at the time, so they sent me down to the Institute of Emergency Management in Victoria, and I did some intense training down there. I worked out later that uh, that training was worth about $300,000 wow. if you were to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I was very lucky and, um, you know, right, to- right place at the right time, and, um, and I got, um, you know, the qualifications and skills in emergency management and um, so that's where I got to see a lot of cyclones because, um, <laughs> you know, in cyclone preparation mm-hmm. with emergency services, you know, you're out there helping people patch their roofs and, you know, even while the cyclone is, is going, it was one, I'll tell you one story, we were, we were at a house in, in Ludmilla and um, someone, one of the guys that looked after the radio had accidentally turned his radio off. Uh-huh. And we were on this roof, and uh, I think it was Cyclone Max, and, um, you know, it was howling and trees were, you know, bending over, and here we are trying to tape down this roof, and um, and then the police rocked up and said, what the hell are you guys doing? And we're like, well, we're patching up this roof, and they're like, no, you're not. Everyone's been told to bunker down. <laughs> <laughs> It's showtime. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, was, um, that was that was pretty intense. Wow. Um, got to see a lot of, you know, land search and rescue, air search and rescue, um, even you know, like with support for the police and fire, you often get to go to murder scenes and stuff like that where you have to back the police up. Yeah. Blocking of roads and and so my nickname with the emergency services was Dodgy. <laughs> now let me tell you the story. So there was a there was a, there was a murder um, incident, a murder scene at uh, the ski be- um, the, the the Darwin Yacht Club and 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 the ski beach area in, in between that area. And we actually had to block the road off from up near the cool spot, and we had to redirect traffic to go around the the. The, the scene where they had it all blocked off. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually in full orange uniform, yeah. right? Like you can't see me. And I've got the orange, you know, lights, you know, directing the, <laughs> directing the cars where they've got to go. But what happens is, is that when people come over the hill, I, I realised that we were actually positioned in the wrong position because when they came over the hill, all they could see was the flashing lights mm. and they couldn't see me. So... The reason why I got my name Dodgy was because I had to dodge three cars. <laughs> and there was one there was one little mini moke that I actually had to dive over the bonnet. Oh, oh wow. God. <laughs> he, he, he was just coming straight for me. Wow. So, yeah, they all called me Dodgy. So. Jeepers. <laughs> were, you, uh, were you around when we had the Cannonball Run in 94? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. that story reminds me of – I don't mean that in, in, in a bad way. It's like um, – I mean, obviously, the, the poor people were killed in that. But, but yeah, you know, they were run over in almost the same way that you're talking about. Yeah. What happens is, is that, you know, like people get blinded 
well, what's happening down in front of them and they can't see what's right in front of them. Yeah. And so, you know, look, it was, I'll be honest with you, it was very scary. Yeah. You know what I mean? I could have lost my life that night. Yeah. And um, and then and then the sergeant of the police, what happened with this guy, drove straight into their scene and, um, and, and so the sergeant came up and he said, look, what's going on? And I said, mate, we're, we're nearly getting run over here, you know, and he's like, yeah. we need to move it. Yes, up the road, yeah. you know. Yeah. So you know what I mean, like these things. I, 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 I also was part of the the initial fire crews with the Darwin Motorsports, the drags. When when we first started the drag races in Darwin, I got my cams officials, and um, and you know we were we were looking after the fire crew, and and all we had was 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 the second hand you a three speed. Um, Manual shift, column shift, <laughs> right? and and a, and and, a, and at the back of the ute was full of fire extinguishers. And anyway, we 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 had a we had a drag car go off the end of the strip, and um, I'll never forget this is this is pretty funny. But um, so I couldn't get it into gear, right? Because they're calling the fire crew. You need to get down the end of the strip, you know, on the radio. So. I'm slamming and trying to slam it into gear, and I put it, actually put it in reverse, and I went flying into the bush. And hit the Valley Motorsports there. And um, <laughs> one of the big fire extinguishers on the back went off the back and and fired. So we had this big puff of powder smoke, right? And then I came, and then I put it into first gear and I came flying through the puff of powder smoke <laughs> and down to the end of the strip. But um, luckily the, the guy had already got out of the car and and he was okay. And so, the crowd got uh, their entertainment for the night from you. Got their entertainment, <laughs> and, um, and with the with the um, cams officials, I, I got a level five cams officials, so I can actually go and work at at any major motorsports event in the world. So I got to go into the, um, um, you know, obviously the V8s and stuff like that. But when the Formula Ones um, came to Adelaide, I, I went down and, and I showed them my. Cam's level five pass, and they thought mm. I was working. So they said, "Oh, you're right, mate. You can just go in." Oh wow! <laughs> I was only showing it just to show them that. You know? And um, so yeah, so you saved yourself three hundred bucks on that. <laughs> Hopefully, somebody took your video of when you were manning the fire car and said, "Hang on, hang on. This bloke <laughs> needs out. to be kept this away." Good, look out! <laughs> Don't put him in the pit. Whatever you do. <laughs> yeah, so, oh um, wow! Had a lot of fun. Um, look, at the end of the day, you know what I mean. Like emergency management is extremely serious. Mm-hmm. But but what I did learn um, from the fireys, especially, is that you know, like you have to lighten the situation, any situation that you're in. And so, you know, like people, I suppose, would get put off by that. But you've got to have a joke at the end of you know when everything is cleaned up and everything sorted out, mm-hmm. you know, um, because to deal with that sort of trauma on a daily basis, um, you know what I mean? Like if you don't lighten the situation, you're going to dwell on it. Yeah. And so, you know, like I've done a lot of work on the psychological side of, you know, how to deal with trauma and and that's what's helped me with my journey with the process of working with kids mm. with trauma. Mm. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in working with the fire protection industry and then I set up my own business which is a company called Fire Protection Professionals, 
been running now for 27 years. Myself and my wife set this company up. Um, I'll just tell you just quickly, I was I was one of these people that I worked multiple jobs. So while I was working with Northern Fire Control, I was also working permanent part-time at Sizzler and I was I was, huh. I was working there as a, as a chef. Now, I'm not a chef, right, but mm. um, when I was working with the Defence Force as a civvy in the Q store, we had a big exercise where we had 4,000 American soldiers and 3,000 Singaporean soldiers come to Darwin. I think it was about 93 or 94, and um, and I was working you know, at, at Larrakia Base in the Q store, and, and one of the soldiers came over and said, look, would you like to come and, and learn how to cook? And because uh, we need some uh, chef's assistance for this exercise, I said, "Yeah, I'd love to learn how to cook." So I went along, and and I worked in the in, in the sergeant's mess at the Larrakia base. Now we had three chefs, three chefs' assistants, and six kitchen hands, and there was only three sergeants living on base. So there was very little for us to do. So I'm not one of these people that can. Uh, sit around reading the newspaper sort of person, you know what I mean? Like, So I I went back to the Q store. I went back to my sergeant at the Q store and I said, look, I'm, I'm not going to work in the kitchen. He said, why not? And I said, because I, I can't. I'll, I'll resign. He said, okay, let me talk to the other sergeant. So he said, look, as long as you come down and help at the exercise with the cooking, you can go back to the Q store. And then, lo and behold, they sent me a certificate saying chef's assistant. So <laughs> I said, thank you very much. I'll take that one as well. <laughs> and that's how I got my it? job at, at Sizzler. So, um, Love it. <laughs> so I was working at Sizzler. This is Sizzler, you know, was next door to the cinema and yes. um, was extremely busy. So I worked yes. um, five nights a week, um, Tuesday till Saturday. And on top of that, I worked a job at the bush shop out at Humpy Doo on the weekends. And then sometimes I used to do night work at Petty Sessions um, as well. Mm-hmm. So I was working four, four, four jobs. Oh. But this is, at Sizzler, um, some nights we would we would cook up to 1,400 steaks yes. a night. It was, yes. it was wow. the nice restaurant Look. in Australia. Craig, how, how did it fail? I mean, people still to this day talk about Sizzler uh, next to the cinemas. And, in fact, the cinemas aren't even open now. <laughs> um, mm. Well, to, to me, I just think it was bad management. You know what I mean? Like, the, the, there's no way that that restaurant could not have been profitable. Mm. You know what I mean? The amount of people that we had coming through there, I used to hate it when because we had a little window from the counter staff to the kitchen and they used to hand us our dockets, right? And they used to stick their head in the window and they say, the line's out the door. And you'd say, shut up. <laughs> you already got 80 steaks on the grill, you know what yeah. I mean? Like the line's yeah. out the door. And then they tell you the line's around the corner. And when you knew it was really bad was when the line was in the car park. <laughs> yeah. And it's all because of the all-you-can-eat thing, wasn't it? That's all you can eat. <laughs> but people, people just love certain parts of Sizzler, you know what I mean? Some people love the steaks. Some people love just the cheese bread. You know what I mean? Yeah, people just come there to eat cheese bread. <laughs> <The> salad bar. <laughs> salad bar. Everyone talks about the salad bar. Everyone talks about the salad bar. Well, this is where I met my wife, right? Ah, cool. she, was, she was the QC. She was quality control. So I used to right. see her through this window where I used to hand over the, hand over the plates and, um, and she would always tell me off, you know, like there's not enough garnish on there or it's not good enough presentation. 
Mm. Uh, and I thought to myself, that's my wife. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that normally happens after marriage, though, not before, right? <laughs> I knew what was coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she prepared me well. But look, on a funny story on, on Sizzler, um, look, I, 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 I'm not a drinker or, or a smoker of cigarettes. So I don't take any drugs. You know what I mean? I just didn't get in. I never got into it. You know, I, I did get into a little bit of drinking when I was in my late teenage years. But my, my Indigenous father, so I've got an adopted father. That's Steve Abala. He adopted me when I was a teenager and um, sort of mentored me, you know. Now, um, he helped me to realise that he's not going to get anywhere um, drinking a lot of alcohol and certainly not taking any drugs. Mm. So, you know, without that mentoring, also one of my coaches, my rugby league coach and my AFL football coach was Chico Motlop. He's mm. amazing, just an amazing man. You know, one of the fittest men I've ever met in my life. And... Um, and for support, what he did to support us as individuals was just incredible. You know what I mean? Like how he got to know us as individuals. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we, won, we won grand finals um, on the back of, of his input. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we went, up against, we went up against what they call an unbeatable team. Now, St. Mary's at the time had, you know, three longs. You know, yeah. Michael Long, Noel Long and Bruno Long, you know, they had two Duns, Dennis Dunn and Kaji Dunn. Yeah. They had three Riolis. You know what I mean? Like they had Ad- Michael Athanasia. You know what I mean? They were an unbeatable team. But it's the way that Chico taught us. He said, a champion team will always be the team of champions. Mm. And we walked out onto a grand final and an under, under 16's grand final. This team had beat us by 90 points two weeks before, and we turned that around and beat them by 86 points. Far out. Wow. And that was all because of the coach. Mm. He changed the makeup of the team, and instead of going out there and doing our warm-ups out on the ground, he made us tackle and box in the, in the change rooms. Mm. And then when we walked out on the ground, he said, this man, I can tell you right now, he, he, if you play dirty, you are off. Yeah. But he said, I want you to hit them hard, straight from the bounce. Mm. That's what we did. We won the grand final. Mm. So, um, you know, look, I think that those sort of life experiences, um, you know, guide you into the person that you become mm. when you become an adult, you know what I mean, from when you're a kid. And these type of people that, you know, take time and interest in your life, they're the ones that that help you to understand the life experiences plus what you need to do to support your family and and to be a good person. Mm. And that's what they that's what these men taught me as a young man. And uh, I, I'm I'm so privileged that that I've had their their input and you know implicit impotence in my life that um, it's it's helped to guide me to the person that I am. Do we still have people like this around, Steve, uh, Craig? That, Absolutely. Um, you know. Absolutely. The, the, you know, if you look at, you know, um, people like Daryl White, 
you know, yes. the work that, that, that he's doing, you know, not, not just with the football but with the basketball in Queensland. Mm. You know, there, there are a lot of young people that are ex- – that are from, and from the Northern Territory, we have amazing role models. You look at Bo Delacruz. Yes. And, um, you know, Daniel Motlop, you know, he's got an amazing business. Him and Shannon Motlop, um, you know, look what Shannon's doing with the Wanderers Football Club at the moment. Mm. You know, I mean, I take my hat off to these guys, you know, like Cyril Rioli, you know, uh, junior boy. What, what, he's not looking for the accolades, but I know what he's doing with the first debt program, with the prison programs, and, and, and he's kicking amazing goals. Mm. And, and these, are the, these are the people that don't go for the accolades. They're not there to show pony or, or to make themselves look good. They're just there to actually do what needs to be done to help these youth. And mm. this is the biggest challenge we have in this country at the moment is we have the highest rates of youth suicide in the Northern Territory per capita in the world. Mm. And um, and we have the highest rates of youth detention. And these are alarming statistics, you know. Yeah. These, these, these are the kids that, that we, we know their families. So um, for me, this is, this is you know, I, I believe that um, – we're all guided to 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 be able to make a difference, and and for me, it's it's you know look I I understand um, governance, you know I've worked for the government as well. Um, I worked for, for for the federal government a couple of positions um, with the Australian Bureau of Statistics in East Arnhem I was its assistant district manager. Um, the reason I took the role on over there was that I knew that for the people of East Arnhem to get an understanding for the government to know what is needed for the community. You need to get the information and the correct numbers of what's happening. But what I didn't realise was was how bad it really was. Mm. You know, like we've got people in 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 Gapawiak, in in East Arnhem Land. The average household per house is twenty four people. Wow. So why why is that though, uh, Craig? Like. Is it because not enough houses are being built, or is it because not enough houses are being built? And 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 I can tell you right now, the biggest challenge is 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 the process of of getting permits to be able to build on on indigenous land. So you know what I mean, like the the Land Rights Act and 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 the W nine, what's what they call a W nineteen, which is an application to do work on on, on indigenous communities. Is too long-winded. It just takes way too long. I know community, right community members that are waiting for been waiting for twelve years to get a permit to build on their land. Who grants the permit? Northern Land Council. So why are they not being held to account over this? Well, they're trying to streamline the process, but it's not. It's it's the the whole policy itself needs to be changed because. If you, if you look at what it's really there designed to is to not to give access to corporations or, or businesses to build on Indigenous land. So what it does is it, 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 it hand ties the local people to be able to do anything on their country, which is really sad. You know what I mean? Because I mean, I just don't, you know, it, it's just, it's bizarre. Like, I, I, I don't understand... You, you, you know, I mean, we're just ordinary territorians. We don't have a, a, a you know a strong connection to the indigenous communities yeah. because we don't see them. What we do see is the 
you know, the fallout from all of this, of course. Yeah. Uh, both in Alice Springs and up here in Darwin. Yeah. Um, but it just, you know, I, I, I don't understand. I mean, Australia, you, you know, since white settlement is over 200 years old, made a lot of mistakes along the way. Yeah. But we're here in the 21st century. What, how, why, why is it so difficult to get the simple things wrong? Right. Yeah. Look, um, uh, I don't have answers, you know, like for for why the policies and procedures are designed like they are. All I know is that, is that it makes it makes it so hard for anybody to actually do anything, especially the 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 indigenous landowners. And and why that is. Well, you'll have to ask someone higher ranking in the government, you know what I mean? Like, because I can't answer that question. All I know is that it's very frustrating and um, and a lot of the problems that happens in communities uh, are because of the policies that we have, because mm-hmm. they restrict, restrict Indigenous people from being able to do anything on their community. Now, I, I really get upset with this word that, 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 capacity, right? Indigenous corporations, associations or businesses don't have the capacity. You cannot get the capacity unless you're given the opportunity. Mm. Now, I've been working in the space of, of, you know, training. I've done a lot of training programs in remote communities right across the territory, done a lot of, lot of, lot of programs in um, asset maintenance because what you can see is that there, there's so much maintenance required in these communities. What happens is is that all this money that goes into these communities is, if you look at it like a pool, right, it goes into the pool. But because the contracts are all coming in from outside, that money is going straight back out. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, is that people see that the government is putting all this money into these communities, but it's not staying in the community. Mm-hmm. So there's no benefit for the community. Now, even though there's some projects that might happen and they get some, I might get a new health centre or, you know, a, a new barge landing or something like that, like that's a benefit for the community in the long run, but there's no one got any employment or training opportunity out of that project. And that's where the fall is. But, okay, look, I mean, there's so many different directions we can go through, go through with this conversation. But, you know, we spoke to um, um, Kim Cairns recently and she's a, she was a teacher both, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, what was the name of that community? Uh, Dumaji. Dumaji, Dumaji, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, know, yeah. I know Alex really well. And uh, and, and she also taught in um, uh, Borolula. Borolula, yeah. Right? Yep. And as a school teacher, okay, in, in the communities. And, and we said, we asked her, we said, right, um, you know, what's your thinking about that? And, and she just said, it's really, really hard. I mean, yep. you know, th- th- it's not... There's not a lot of buy-in to education, yeah. Uh, because what's the point? Y- you know. And so, how do you break this cycle, Craig? How do you do that if there's well, no buy-in to education? education. I, 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 look, for me, the the easiest thing to, to to do here is that all programs and all work opportunities and all opportunities from communities need to be run by community, right? Now. You can you can go come from an outside. This is let me give an example with Australian Bureau of Statistics, right? So in 2011, they sent a group of graduates from Canberra 
up into East Arnhem Land, where English is sometimes a third or a fourth language. There's 14 dialects just in East Arnhem Land alone. That's Indigenous dialects. Now, I've got friends that speak the whole 14 dialects, right? So they sent group, a group of graduates. Now, they had the lowest count in Australia, a 22% count. What we did in 2015 or 2016, um, we got all of our all of our counters because it's a paper count. It's not electronic count, you know. Most people in, in remote communities don't know how to use computers. So it's a paper count where you actually go around and you interview each family and you get their personal information. And you think they're going to give up their personal information for something <laughs> they don't know? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just not going to happen. Mm. So what we did was we convinced we convinced ABS that we needed to train up local people. So all of our counters, all of our supervisors and all of our team leaders were community people from that community. Now, yes, it took a lot more work to get that across the line. And you know what I mean? Like I'm a trainer. That was That's my forte. You know what I mean? We went out there and we trained them. We just took a little bit of extra time to get it right. Now, we went from a 22% count to an 88% count. So did it work? Absolutely it did. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like they had a massive increase. So, you know, look, I put that that same sort of process into the training programs that we're running at YBE and at Lanapoy Homelands, also over in Roper Golf. I've done them over in in the Vic Daly region, Tennant Creek and Central Australia. And we've had massive success with our trainings. I set up a business with an Indigenous partner as a good friend of mine by the name of Byron Davis. And we set up a business in Palmerston, which was called Life Balance, right? Now, it was the first Indigenous RTO in the Northern Territory. And and the concept of that business was to do youth diversion. You know, like we had a lot of challenges with youth in Palmerston area. Now, we were pushing through three to 400 kids through that centre a week. Mm -hmm. Now, we were running self-defence classes. We were running fitness classes. But we were also running asset maintenance and work pathways classes, you know, um, panel beating, spray painting, mechanics, um, carpentry, whatever whatever opportunities we could get. What we were doing was that we were drift, we were filling the gap. So not only were we training these young people, but we were actually going out to the businesses and saying, "Hey, look, we got these trainees. Give us an opportunity for them. Let's do let's do some work experience or." Or, or to some, some casual work and give them an opportunity. But what we did was that we mentored them. So we had mentors that they related to that would go in once a week and mentor them on the job. Mm. When you had, yep. So when you talk about Palmerston, for example, right? Yep. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you'd have 23 people to a house in Palmerston, would you? No. Okay, no, so there, there are some large numbers, right? In houses in and is that because people are coming in from outstation to stay? Absolutely, these, yeah, right. To stay right. with family. So, so there's obviously some cultural issues there in terms of you can't say no. Is it, would that, I'm just guessing here. Yeah, absolutely. Is how it works, right? Yeah, it is how it works. You know. Okay. And especially and, if if that person or that family is a higher ranking family. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like they can't say no. They've got to uh, allow them to come in. So, um, you know, like when you've got that, see, that puts pressure on the family structure. Yes. 
right? Yes. Not only does it put pressure on the family structure, it puts major pressure on the infrastructure of the house. Yes. You know what I mean? So, you know, you can you imagine what your toilet would be like? Exactly. 24, 25 people. Exactly. You know, or your laundry. Yes. You know what I mean, like these are... These Which is why massive. rheumatic heart fever is uh, rife. Absolutely. In these are massive pressures. Yeah. And, and this is why, you know, like there are... There are big challenges with the overcrowding that, that, that needs to be fixed. You know, like I can honestly tell you that the amount of money that the government has put in for the housing imbalance is a drop in the ocean mm. because it's not just the housing challenge. What you've got to understand is the utilities that run those communities that cannot feed a whole new suburb. Yes. Right? I'll give you an example. Nooker is a perfect example. Right, they went and they put in a whole new suburb development, laid all the foundations, the roads, all the plumbing, everything electrical, and then they can't build a house because the power and water <laughs> infrastructure won't won't take the increase. Mm, yes. Mm. Right. So you know, two billion dollar over a ten year um, housing, it's not going to cut it. Yes. So who are we talking about here? Are we talking about Dipple? I mean, basically, this is, government. this is both the territory government and the federal government together. Right. Right. You got to remember that that we are we're not a state; we're a territory. So we're funded by the federal government. Right. You know what I mean? And and and, and it's their issue. You know what I mean? The federal government needs to take ownership of the challenges with the overcrowding of the houses in the Northern Territory. Mm. Will they? Oh. Um, what you want to know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's got to be an appetite for it. Yeah, but you know, like that's that's what it's all about is lobbying. Yeah. You know I mean? like, Can I ask lobbying. you this question then, uh, Craig? I mean, uh, Bush, you must be familiar with the website Bush Bush Telegraph, is it? Bush Telegraph. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's an amazing website. I never even absolutely. knew it existed until last yeah. year. Um, you can get on that website, you can type in any community you like, yep. and you can get these amazing Google images of the communities. Yep. Right? Now, what struck me when I went on that website and did a little bit of investigation is, you know, where some of these communities are located in absolutely the middle of nowhere. Yep. How do you make such a community like that work? Craig, I, I, can you? I mean, can you build like fifty houses there and make it work? I mean, do, do in you know do those occupants want to live in houses? I mean, I, I'm asking some really fundamentally naive questions because I don't absolutely, know the they answers. But absolutely, right. you know what I mean. Like uh, from from my experience living with Indigenous people and working with Indigenous people for over forty years. Yeah. Right. Um, what, I, what I've learned is that they know more than me. They know this country like the back of their hands. They have an intrinsic knowledge of everything around their community. They know what works and what doesn't work. And, and they're also very astute. They understand that they need to progress and, and they're prepared to, to work on that for, for, for their children's future. You know what I mean? Like... Um, I've never, I've never met anybody that that is is so in tune with their surroundings as Indigenous people in each community. And I'll be honest with you that I've been absolutely fortunate that I've met 
a lot of senior elders from right across this country. And they've welcomed me onto their country and they've taught me about their country, they've taught me about their culture and they've taught me about how they live in harmony with their surroundings. And this is what I take back to these young people is that for them, they need to get back in touch with culture and then they can move forward. So let me move on a little bit to the Gary Durko Foundation. So um, I went and moved to Nullumboy uh, about seven years ago and um, I, I was working with um, Rio Tinto. I had a contract with Rio Tinto. That contract finished. I started working with the company called uh, Unil Business Enterprise. And myself and, and my good friend over there, we, we were both heavily involved in the football, Damien Jakura, and we started running um, um, training training pathways, work training and work pathways programs, and, and they were hugely successful. We had a 100% success rate out of 24 students after two years of full-time employment. Now, I don't know any other program that's ever mm. achieved anything like that. The Northern Territory Government put our programs up on their e-news as the most successful training program in the Northern Territory for that year. So we had huge success. I can tell you that I, I, I cannot speak Yunnal, their language. Most of the trainees that we were getting were from remote homeland communities. Now, homeland is a small community of, of up to about 10 to 15 houses max, Right. So there's eighty, there's 186 homeland communities in East Arnhem Land alone. Hmm. What I found was that these communities are very under-supported. So um, we're running these programs. We're having a lot of success. We're having a lot of success with the football programs, pathways programs that we're running as well. And um, I was asked by uh, an old senior elder by the name of Jalu Guruwiwi. Uh, this man is 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 in, in his mid nineties, um, and um, he's the Yidaki healer, which is the didgeridoo. Mm, yeah, right. Now he's healed people all over the world. Prince Charles, when he came to Australia for the um, Commonwealth Games, flew all the way to Yirrkala in his own land to get Yidaki healing from Jalu. Wow. Privately asked for the the healing. And um, so this man is well known. He he healed Siamese twins in Italy, and after he he did the healing on them, they rolled and fell apart. So he is he is worldwide renowned. But he sings what's called the Wittich Wittich song, which is the water dreaming, right? But he doesn't just sing that song for East Arnhem Land. He sings it for the whole continent as well as the whole world. This is what I've been told. Now they've done tours all over the world, but this uh, and and you know we we end up getting a partnership with, with with the Port Adelaide Football Club because their totem is the lightning, which is called the Baywara, and Port Adelaide's on their on their emblem power is mm -hmm. the lightning bolt. So we end up meeting meeting up with with the Port Adelaide Football Club. We went down and we met with the CEO and, and a man by the name of Paulie Vandenberg. And this man is another man that is tireless in his work for Indigenous youth, absolutely mm. tireless. I love Paulie Vandenberg with all my heart. He's an amazing man. Let me call out to you, brother. I love what you do. He now works with the AFL 
when he was working with Port Adelaide at the time. Now, Jalu and his family went down to Adelaide. They met with the CEO and they gave Yadakis that had been hand-painted to each of the Indigenous players from Port Adelaide. Now, um, the CEO was so touched by this, he organised an exhibition for them at the Adelaide Museum. That exhibition was supposed to go for three weeks. It went for six months. That's how popular it was. Mm. And then from there, they got tours around the world. They had a tour in Japan. They had a tour in the UK, tour in Indonesia, and they had a tour that went to um, um, the Middle East uh, to um, Abu Dhabi. Now, they sing a song which is called the West Wind Song. Now, that song comes from there, mm. comes from Arabia. Now, when they did that song, there was a sheep, you know, like full-blown sheep with five or six bodyguards that came up to, to Larry Guruwiwi and asked him where that song came from. Now, he said to them, well, that song comes from here. And he's like, how? And he's like, well, your ancestors used to trade with, with our ancestors five, six hundred years ago. Wow. And that man cried. And he told him in front of me, I saw it, he said, that is our song. That is our language. He was just, he was bewildered that, that he would be able to sing that, sing their language. So I've seen this myself and um, this man came and asked me to, to help with the Gary Durke Foundation. So Gary, I, 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 I know Gary, I, I know the family, and, and um, it was an honour for me to take on the role as a CEO of the Gary Durko Foundation. Um, the foundation had been running for about eight or nine years before I came on board and they were doing scholarship programs, um, had a little bit of success, you know, but they had never had one full scholarship. You know, so um, what they thought was a failure, I saw as a success, just getting kids to go in and, and learn in 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 higher education schools in this country, to me, was a success. You know, if they spent one year, 12 months, six months, three years down south, then they're going to gain in knowledge. So what we did was that um, a couple of my good friends from East Arnhem Land, Marcus Lacey, um, Wayne Durke, um, Danny Bromman, and uh, Wayne and, and um, Damien Jakura, um, Damien was the one that taught me that you've got to have Indigenous mentors. And so I took this on board. It's no use me coming in and trying to teach them about education because I'm not from there. They might see me at the football, but I'm not part of their community. You know what I mean? Their community is their family. Mm. So even though I've been adopted into their family now and they see me as a family member, but when I first went there, I wasn't. I was just an outsider, just another trainer, you know what I mean? But Damien taught me that, one, we had to go and speak with the family and the elders of the community so that they could approve those young men and women to come and go on the training program with us. I learned a lot from that because he spoke to them in language and I spoke to them in English. From that, we spoke to the young trainees and we explained to them you know, what they'd be doing on a daily basis. They had to catch the bus in each morning extremely early 
come and do the program. Now we had we had around, we had around about a ninety two percent attendance rate over a two year period, and it just shows that you can create the enthusiasm as well as the you know like the the cultural um, you know that the training that's that, that that's worked around their culture because these people are in East Island land are extremely cultural. Right? Mm. If someone dies in their family, it's not an asked question. It's a requirement that they have to attend. Now, some of these funerals go for three or four weeks, depending on the level of the person that's passed away. Mm-hmm. So, look, I, I learned a lot um, while I was there. I learned a lot about culture. I thought I knew culture before I went to East Arnhem Land. I was I got a big <laughs> learning curve because. Um, these people are extremely strong in their culture and and it's the most beautiful culture that I've ever seen. Now, like I said to you, I grew up in Darwin. My friends are Filipino, Indian, Sri Lankan, Greek, Italian, Chinese, a lot of Timorese friends, you know what I mean? Greek, I mean, German, you know, French. We, I, I've got friends from all over the world because that's how Darwin Darwin is. But now with the, the culture, I'm, I'm bringing it to a balance so I can see that we can work together both with the ancient cultures from all around the world plus the ancient culture that we have here and we can work together to create something really special. Mm. And that's what we're doing with, with Gary Derke and the Bellingham Foundations. We're working with groups right across this country. We have partnerships with some of the, some of the major sporting organisations you know, we've got a partnership with, with the Richmond Football Club and we've got a partnership with the Melbourne Storm. Now, they're the two two of the most successful sporting organisations in this country and they support our programs. And we're, we're running a program with the Richmond Institute of Sport and Technology uh, next month here in Darwin. They're going over to the TV Islands and they go over to Mudjablau, over to Telcare. They go to Bellevue Community and then they go into Litchfield and they go and learn about the culture, and we take youth from those from those um, regions from the from Victoria. Um, so they're from all over Victoria, mm-hmm. and and they come up and they learn about culture. So what we're also looking at doing is having an exchange program where those youth can come up and go and go into the remote schools and spend six or twelve months out in those schools. But with mm-hmm. the Gary Durke Foundation, what we did was we went back to the communities. The community told us they told us what they wanted to do with the homeland schools. The homeland schools teach 50% culture and 50% Western education. They want, and, and until youth have done their initiations in that community, they don't want those youth to leave, so up to grade 7 or grade 8. Once they've passed, they've done their initiations, then they can go out. But the most important thing for them is to be initiated into their culture, into their homeland communities. And, and, I, and I believe this wholeheartedly. This is where they get the foundation and this is what is lost with a lot of the other, um, you know, a lot of the other communities in this country. And, and that has been taken away from them because, one, the language is lost and, secondly, the song lines and the dances have been lost. Mm. That's why when we bring Indigenous youth up from interstate, they get very extremely emotional when they go out to communities. 
and it's really good to see. But the program, one of the best programs that we do with the Gary Durke is that we have a Skype program where we, we get kids from interstate schools, the big boarding schools around the countries, they Skype into the kids in remote homeland schools. One, the kids in the state teach them about the schooling, help them with Western education, and the kids in the community teach them about their community and their culture. And then we bring them on an excursion and they meet each other. And that's when the real magic happens. Mm. It's an amazing experience. Uh, I love it. I love seeing these kids join together and work together. And they're our future and we can make generational change by just doing simple things that these people do on a daily basis and working with each other as 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 people and as organisations around the country to create something magical because this country does have the oldest living culture in the world and it is important for the balance of the whole world. You know, this Uluru in, in the middle of Central Australia is the heart of this country. And if, and if you took the time to actually go down and learn from the elders in Wadjulu, you will find out the real story about that rock. And, and it has amazing cultural significance to this country. So the federal government ignoring the uh, statement from the heart from the Indigenous people is really sad, right? Um, because, you know what I mean, Mabo did prove that there was no Terranales. Right? And that's why Land Rights Acts came in. But what people don't understand is that it's not the Land Rights Act that has the power, it's the Land Trust. And the Land Trust is the voice of the people. And, and they're speaking in waves. You know what I mean? We have a lot of things that we, we need to we need to reconcile from our past in this country. And and I can tell you right now, these people do not want for for you know for big piles of money or anything like that. They just want a recognition that what was done was wrong. Hmm. Isn't that what happened when Kevin Rudd was Prime, uh, Prime Minister? Yeah, but he, he might have apologised, but nothing happened. You know what I mean? Like if you look at the closing the gap, it's it's only increased since that apology. The, the closing the gap has widened dramatically. You know what I mean? Like if you look at just at the Northern Territory, you know, like, when I started when I started working with the Tiwi bombers, okay, the Tiwi Islands had the highest rate of youth suicide in the world per capita. Now we had young people climbing up power poles, grabbing on the power lines to take their lives. The anti-government's um, solution to this was put spikes up around the poles so they couldn't climb the poles. Do you really think that's going to work? Mm. They'll just find something else. Mm. You know what I mean? And that was the reason why the TV bombers were set up. The TV bombers were set up so that they could have people from their own community that they could aspire to. Now, they were able to reduce the teenage suicide in, in the TV Islands by 68% in a five-year period. So the program worked. But what you've got to realise, guys, is that the program was designed, set up and run by TV elders. Hmm. Right? It's got to come from within. You know what I mean? We can do everything we can to help support them, but these people know the answers to the problems in their communities. We need how is that going to work, Craig? I mean, I'm listening to you and, you know, I, to, to be honest with you, I've heard this all before, but what I see is just 
Well, you know, in terms of like people right now, I mean, when I listen to people like, uh, you know, the mayor of Palmerston, for example, uh, at home, alcohol, alcohol is a huge problem. How, how are you going to, how are you going to fix all of this if we can't, you know, if the parents just, you know, don't really care because they are drunk and that's all yeah. they know. And yeah. And so the kids are out in the streets. Yeah. But you've got to remember that there's intergenerational trauma here, right? Happened over a long period of time. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what, what you think, but, but if you get your kids taken from you, forcefully removed from your family, that's going to affect you over a long period of time. You know what I mean? Like, and, 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 and on that, we have the highest rate of in, in foster, foster care Indigenous kids that we've ever had in this country. Over 18,000 kids are in foster care. We have the stolen generation all over, but in foster care. But I can tell you that it ain't no short fix, but there is a fix. There are solutions and there are people out there that do have, do have solutions to all of these challenges. Now, I wrote a white paper to the federal government, which was called Healing Our Nation, right? Now, I even met with Christopher Pine. I also met with Nigel Scullion on a number of occasions. And I can tell you, to be quite honest with you, they had no idea, right? Mm. And that's because they're not interested. Now, I've got a personal interest in this because these are families that, that, that I love. But I can tell you that the solution is, is that we need to roll out across the country and Indigenous cultural learning programs in all levels of education. I agree right? with that. I agree right? with that, yeah. Primary secondary and tertiary educations. Now, if we were teaching culture from each each community right across the country, one, that's going to give these people a purpose. They're going to be teaching about their own culture, mm. right? Secondly, we need to teach language in schools, right, from those regions. When I spoke to Christopher Pine, he didn't even realise there was more than one language. There are <laughs> thousands of Indigenous languages across this country. You know what I mean? Like that... That mm. sort of thinking is is really backwards. Mm. There, are forward, there, there are forward <laughs> thinking there are forward thinking people in this country that want to make a difference and are making a difference. Right? So if we rolled out those type of programs, right, and we had proper training programs where youth had pathways into employment with mentors, then you're gonna find that they're gonna to want to go and work. Mm. But at the moment when they go into a workplace, it's foreign to them. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it's a completely foreign environment. It's like what's happening with the AFL, right? That's a perfect example, right? Mm. There's very few remote community Indigenous sports people that make it into the, in, into the high rankings of the AFL. Mm. And that's because when they go from community, they have no family, Right. They, it's a completely different environment. The food is completely different. They're, it's too foreign for them. And it's not a proper pathways. Hey, Craig, just on that, could, could you just explain um, the Gary Durkay story a little bit? Because that, that's quite a good segue, I reckon. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I don't know his story back to front, but I know it well enough to, to understand that exactly what you just described was exactly what happened to him. Midway through a career. Right. Well, um, Gary was an amazing sportsman, right? 
he could have played any sport. Even even athletics, he was he was very talented runner. You know what I mean, like a sprinter. Mm. So um, you know he was good at all sports, but he chose AFL, and and he managed to get himself a you know uh, a, a go with North Melbourne Football Club. Um, he was lucky that he had some very good friends there. Shannon Motlock was there. Mm. Um, Winston Abraham, you know, um, just to name a couple of players. Byron Pickett, you know what I mean? Like these, if there's multiple Indigenous people in, in these clubs, it's much easier for the players. But, you know, Gary went on to play in the inaugural team for, for Fremantle and I think he played uh, six or seven seasons with the Fremantle Football Club. Now, um, it wasn't that his career was cut short. He chose to come back to yeah. East Arnhem Land and and run mentoring programs with youth. This was his dream from when he was a kid. He wanted to, to help youth to have proper pathways so they could have opportunities and and get the education that they needed. So, you know, like he was very education orientated. Very sports orientated. So, um, you know, look, a group of his friends and family, after he tragically passed away in an accident, um, set up the Gary Durkay um, Academy. It was an academy at the start. Mm. Um, we turned it into a foundation in in, in around 2017, 18. And, um, and because it wasn't just about sports, right? Gary's focus was education. He always wanted to ensure that these youth had a good education and we did it through the sports pathways. So, um, you know, look, that was that was his focus and the families wanted to continue that focus and continue to running those programs. So, look, we, we, we've now been running, we've been running these cultural tour programs. We run the educational engagement and the Educational Pathways Program. So we've been able to partner up with the Culture College. We've partnered up with a number of schools around the country, we, and we've mainly partnered up with, with other foundations like foundations. So we have a partnership with the Wirrapunda Foundation in WA. Mm. We have a partnership with the Andrew McLeod Centre, Indigenous Centre of Excellence out of Adelaide Crows. You know, we have a partnership with the Go Foundation for, out of the Sydney Swans, Adam Goods and Mickey O'Loughlin. You know, we have a partnership with the Melbourne Storm. We we work with a lot of organisations, like-minded organisations around the country to, um, you know, to to get the best outcomes that we can because um, we're not funded. Yeah. We, we, we don't receive any funding from the territory or federal governments. Hmm. Um, and, and we do it on a shoestring budget, but... We're, we're able to achieve extremely good outcomes because of the people that work for the foundation. We have Magnolia Maybury. I don't know if you recognise her name, but um, Magnolia was the first Indigenous model to make it into the Miss World Finals. Uh, I remember that. Yeah. And, um, she's also an actress um, and she's from East Arnhem Land. Um, she can speak nine of the 14 dialects. The kids absolutely adore her, and um, and she's our programs coordinator. Mm. You know, uh, Wayne Durkay is is Gary's younger brother. He's our general manager. 
So I'm helping Wayne to mentor him to become the CEO. Mm. Um, on the board, we have Gary's kids, Xavier and Zaniah, uh, are on the board. You know, mm. they both live in they both live in in Western Australia now with their mother. Well, they're both now adults, and they've both got kids. Uh, wow. Yeah. And 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 you know, like the Durke and the Guru Wiri family are very close. And um, and it's you know I just love the harmony that they they have mm. in, in relation to making decisions about what needs to happen with you know the governance, the programs, and the foundation as a whole. Mm. And for me, I'm just there as a guide. You know what I mean? Like to help them. Craig, I like the um, the sort of language that you're using in terms of. You know the, the the programs in in the communities and and I actually um, sort of thank you for explaining the homeland community side of things because I, I didn't really understand that prior to you explaining that something that sort of keeps popping into my head and I, I hope I'm not throwing a spanner in the works here but is there a disconnect between uh, these more remote communities and uh, the the families that are living in more the urban areas. So, you know, if we take Darwin and we take Alice Springs for an example, because these are the areas that keep getting thrown up to us time and time again as real trouble spots at the moment. How how does something like what you do uh, get into those communities as well to to try and roll out what you do and, and make those improvements? Well, look, we're running running programs in in every community Mm -hmm. and every township. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like if there's a need um, and, and we get the opportunity, then we'll run programs there. We, we don't just work on – it's like we're running this program in a little community called Ranku on Bathurst Island. Now, it's, 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 it's a homeland. It's, it's got like five houses. Mm-hmm. But um, the program, we're going to be helping the community fix a house. We're going to be dismantling a kitchen. We've got these youth from interstate. We'll have 12 youth there and four adults, and they'll be working with community members to help improve the community. Mm. But what else they also do is is that they we work with the schools. So we go into the schools and we run programs in the schools where they meet people from elsewhere. Now, yes, I agree with you, Peter, there is a disconnect between remote communities and and urban centres, right? And that's because the kids, the Indigenous kids in the urban centres are not getting that continual cultural um, feedback, training and ceremony that is required for them to sustain their culture at the level that is needed. Mm. Now... Um, we're also working with that with many groups to to bring kids back to culture. One of the challenges with the correction system is that when they bring people out of community, they don't send them back to community. So when someone gets released from detention or prisons in Darwin, they get released in Darwin. They've got no way of getting home. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like this is yeah. where the, the breakdown is, is that, you know, like, you know, like it's great having these these facilities 
and doing all of these programs that you've got inside the prisons, but how about some prevention programs and how about some support when they leave? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? This is where we're filling the gap. We're doing prevention programs. We're doing youth diversion programs. We're fully involved in youth suicide prevention. Now, the, now the Bella New Foundation, which I'm a board member on, has been running youth suicide prevention programs for 13 years. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, as I wrote in that article, they were put up as the shining light in the Royal Commission. But after the Royal Commission came out, the NT government put all his funding into these other programs and, and into building other new facilities, but nothing into Bellinue. Now, mm. Bellinue, it quite clearly states in the report, was preventing kids from, one, returning to, to youth detention centres, mm. and secondly, from suiciding. Uh, that, that's got to be, you know, there, there's a major concern there. Why isn't that foundation being put on steroids so that we can help to fix these problems? We, 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 run, we run cultural programs with youth, you know, only on a quarterly basis because we just don't have the funding. Mm. And, and when families actually come to us, come to the foundations and say, look, you know, we don't have any money, but, but can you help us out with our kids? Well, we run those programs. So I've worked out since I've been, you know, like this is, look, I come from an auditing background. My father was an auditor. I understand mathematics extremely well. I, I, that's, my, that's my role in these organisations to see what the guts of the organisation was doing and how we can improve it. Right? So I did an audit on Bellinue when I first went there and I worked out that they are up around about 60, 68% of their work is unpaid. Wow. That's astronomical. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's all the behind-the-scenes support that this organisation does with high-risk clients. You know, like you got kids that are suicidal, you have to have 24-hour hotline numbers. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't get funding for that, none of that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's, not, it's, it, it's not a difficult stretch to see why kids would be suicidal when – you know, there's 24 people living in a house. This it's full of alcohol. There's yep. fetal alcohol syndrome going on, uh, and there's just you know, violence. Abuse. There's a lot of abuse that happens. Yes. You know what I mean? Like behind the doors that 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 we that 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 we don't see on the mainstream media. But I can tell you that it's happening. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I'm working with these families. Right. We, we we know what's happening behind the scenes, and so does the government. And mm. so these kids, uh, you know, according to the mayor of, of um, Alice Springs, who we've had on this podcast as well, so, you know, they are attracted to the bright lights in the big city of Alice Springs. Yep. They come to Alice Springs. They don't really want to go back to the community. Well, what, you, what you find is that the groups that they get involved with, the little gangs and, and their groups and stuff like that, that's their family. Yeah. Right. right? That ends up being their family. So instead of the cultural structure which they have in the homelands and in the remote communities where they're actually part of the structure and they're required to do duties as part of that structure, right, in the community, but they lose that when they come into the cities. Into the urban centres, they lack that. And that's why we've been trying to set up a cultural hub where these kids get that. And so we take these kids out onto country and we teach them that and we teach them about how to open up the frontal lobe and and replace that cloud that's sitting there in front of them and holding them into that depressive state. 
and and it's hard work. I tell you guys, the amount of work that that mm. that our, our guys do is just. I take my hat off to them because it's highly strenuous. It's it's up at the same level as police, fire, and emergency services yeah. mm. in relation to the physical and mental pressure that's on you on a daily basis. You imagine having to deal with with people that are suicidal, suicidal on a daily basis. Yeah. So we've had a lot of staff turnover. It, it's a massive challenge. Mm. You know, guys, I tell you this: it's, it's a massive challenge. We. We we have a massive amount of of youth that are that are depressed, and that's because there is a disconnect in the system that we have. Now that's not to say that it can't be fixed. It's not an easy fix, but it can be fixed. And, and there is a there is a look. I like, I, I like the keep it simple, stupid. Uh, you know, I, I don't overcomplicate things. There is a simple solution. And there is a positive solution, and we have those opportunities there. And what we need to do is we need we need to grasp them as communities. The community needs to take ownership of what's happening in the community, just like each individual remote community. Same with the Palmerston community and the Darwin community, and any urban centre in this country, Alice Springs. What's happening in their community? Instead of having these vigilantes. You know, look, look. I, I, I know stories in Alice Springs where youth are going out to the pubs and then they're going out to to bash these young Indigenous youth that are on the streets. Now you've got kids as young as six and seven, right, living yeah. on the streets in Alice Springs, and they are getting bashed by teenagers and and young men and women, right, that live in those communities. They need to take ownership of that. That is wrong, mm. right. Yes, what these kids are doing, rebelling and breaking in and, and you know, like doing damage to, to people's property and stuff like that is wrong, but that's not the solution. We need to start to show that we've got some love. We need to start to show that we've got some empathy, we've got some compassion, and we are prepared to do the hard yards to help these kids. These are kids. Mm. So that's the, that's the focus that we take, guys. When we, when we run the programs that we run. We work with the community people. We get them to take ownership of the problem that's happening with their youth, and we help them to solve that problem. Now, we can do that on a national scale. That can be rolled out quite easily. The federal government could roll that out like that. You know, they rolled out a program in 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 um, primary schools, they rolled out a language program about four or five years ago. I don't know if you guys heard about it, but it, you know, like they were teaching French, Indonesian, Chinese. Uh, Ch- uh, sorry, um, I don't know if it was Mandarin or Cantonese, but one of those languages, and and plus an Arabic language. Now, I don't have any problem with learning <laughs> languages because I can tell you right now, if you can speak multiple languages. You are ahead of the game. Yeah. But there is languages that we already have existing on this continent. Mm. Now, if we were to teach those languages and, and, and about those cultures in those schools for those kids, they would have a greater understanding, a massive empathy for the Indigenous kids that live and go to the school with them, and you would see a massive shift. Mm. Mm. Craig... 
I really appreciate you coming on and chatting to us. Um, uh, Leon and I have had this similar conversation with other people a few times, and I've got to say the previous few times I probably haven't left feeling a hell of a lot of hope. Um, but I love the passion with which you speak, and I hope that delivers into improving the situation for these kids and these families. Well, we are already making massive differences in, in a lot of families, you know. But, look, we, I, do, I would like to say something. We're working with a, a, um, um, some um, Indigenous people from the Litchfield region, which are the Kanarikan families and, and, and Wagai and, and, and a few other Indigenous, you know, like there's about seven um, tribes from that area. But we're also working with the Patrick family. Now, there is a school there which is called the Wollening School, right, which the federal government um, funded to set the school up. It cost something like $28 million to set up. Now, the school has been dormant for nearly three years. So we have been speaking with the families and with the government, and we would, we have support organisations that want to help us support. We want to set this school up as a cultural healing school mm. where we can take youth that are troubled youth and we can help them to heal and help them to learn and then give them pathways for education at the same time. There are both employment and educational opportunities that we can run from this school. So, you know, if there's something that you that you want to get involved in, this is something that that can make a big difference just here in the Northern Territory. You know what I mean? We, we're already doing these programs. They work. They are successful. And, um, you know, we just need the opportunity to, to roll them out on a big scale. Thanks very much for coming on, Craig. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your time. That was Craig Oldroyd on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.